Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I am joined by Dr. Uche Blackstock, a speaker, educator, emergency physician, and the founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity. Dr. Uche is a Harvard graduate from New York, and she has just released her debut book, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. It is all about the inequalities in American medical care. It is part memoir, part analysis, and it is thoroughly engaging. I get to talk to Dr. Uche Blackstock today about her incredible book and what the word legacy really means to her. Plus, we dive into the many books that have impacted her over the years. Remember, our book club pick for February is Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want by Ruha Benjamin. We will discuss the book when Dr. Uche Blackstock returns on Wednesday, February 28th. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you like what you hear today, please consider joining The Stacks Pack, which is our incredible community for book lovers, which you can find at patreon.com slash the stacks. By joining The Stacks Pack, You do make it possible for me to make this little independent book podcast every single week, and you also get a slew of perks for yourself, like our monthly virtual book clubs, access to our Discord community, bonus episodes, shout outs on the show, and more. And you get all of that for just $5 a month. So please head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join. Here's a shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Noni Kleinhans, Melanie Tawil, Jessica Whedon. Kathy Ayton, Tracy Drum, Sophie, Priscilla Rojas, and Linda Washington Armstrong. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack, and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. I adore you all. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with Dr. Uche Blackstock. All right, everybody. I am so excited. I am here today with Dr. Uche Blackstock. She is a physician. She is now an author. Her debut book is called Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. I am so excited to talk to you. Uche, welcome to the Stacks. Hi, Tracy. Thanks so much for having me. I gave you like a professional introduction, but will you tell folks a little bit about yourself, just like a little backstory where you're from, maybe just like a yeah. little a little hint about your relationship to books, too? Sure. Okay. 
So I am um, Uche. I am a Brooklyn native. and I still live in Brooklyn, New York. I lived here when Brooklyn wasn't like the, the cool place that it, it supposedly <laughs> is now. And I, I thought it was cool when I was a kid. Um, I am a twin. Um, my twin sister is also also a doctor and our mother was a doctor. Um, but I am a board certified emergency medicine physician by training. I was in academia for what I thought was going to be my entire life for like 10 years. And then I kind of had this radicalizing experience doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And I decided to go off on my own and start my own consulting firm around health equity. And the rest is history. <laughs> are you an identical yeah. twin or are you fraternal? We're actually fraternal, um, but we look very similar. So for example, you. if you were to, after this interview, like see her on outside your, you know, your house, you'd, you'd be like, Uche. What are you doing here? Like we look, we look enough alike that people confuse us. But okay. I always say, like Mary Kate and Ashley Olson from Full House, they are yeah. fraternal twins, yeah. and they look very similar. Yeah, yeah. I have identical twins, and I feel like I'm always really curious about adult identical twins' experiences because I'm so worried that I'm gonna like ruin my kids' lives. You know, like I feel like twin parents either like ruin their kids' lives or they make their kids like brilliant brilliant physicians. So I'm hoping to do what your family did. <laughs> you cannot possibly ruin their lives. And I mean, Oni and I, we lived together up until we were like 27 years old. So we were yeah. super close. We still are. Yeah. I mean, I, that's all in the book. The whole, everything you just mentioned is in the book. I had such a great time reading the book. I really liked how you kind of were like using your life story to tell this bigger story. And there was, there's this one fact in the book that I c- cannot, I can't stop thinking about it. That Less than 5% of doctors in the United States are black and less than 3% of doctors in the United States are black women. I know. It's, it's sad, right? And it's so sad. And this year, like the year that we're in, you know, given how much quote unquote progress has been made, that the numbers are still really low. Yeah. And like you talk about how one of the reasons that is, is because there was this study that came out about like medical schools and basically all of the black medical schools were deemed unfit. Yeah. Do you think that that really still is like why it's so like not reflective of the population? We know actually there's a study that came out in 2020 that showed that it goes like five medical schools, historically black medical schools had not been closed. They would have trained between 25,000 and 35,000 physicians. And we know that most likely those would have been most likely black physicians. So that is like, that is a huge number. And when you think about how many patients they would have cared for, hundreds, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions, how many students they would have mentored. So definitely that Flexner report, which is something that People, even practicing physicians, like I don't know if your, like you mentioned, if your husband knew about it, about the Flexner report. Like most people don't know about it. Like you don't learn about it in medical school. So right. here you are, like looking around your class, and you're like, why are there so few of us? That's one of the reasons. And so I thought it was really important to discuss that piece of history because people do have questions like, why are we where we are? It's not because there's anything inherently wrong with Black folks and we can't become doctors. It's because there's something wrong with the system. 
Right. It's interesting because, you know, your mother was a physician. So you were raised by a black woman physician. Your sister became a physician as well. So like in your family, the numbers do not match the rest of the country, right? Like of like of the four people in your nuclear family, 75% are black women doctors. But I'm wondering if like, like when you finally got into medical school and you looked around, were you confused? Like, were you like, what's happening here? Because, you know, your mom worked at a hospital in Brooklyn where you grew up. You talk about that there were other black physicians like around, not a lot, but there were others. Right. And then you go to Harvard Medical School as a young black woman wanting to be a doctor and you look around and were you like, wait, what, what's like, could you feel the Flexner report even if you didn't know about it? Yeah, because I feel like most of my life I've been living in this alternate reality where like not only was my mom a doctor, but my pediatrician was, was I mean, was a black woman and my mother led this local group of black women doctors. So literally I was and I was always around black women doctors. I thought that was the norm. Right. So, right. so, so then I get to Harvard Medical School and I'm like, oh, wait, so where is where is everyone? And I think especially when you're looking for a mentor and and usually the way that things work out when you, when you look for a mentor, a mentor looks for you. They they look for people who are similar to them. That's just sort of how it goes. So yeah, it was, it was very, um, a little bit demoralizing when I made that realization. Yeah. So let's talk about the title of the book because I want to ask you a question sort of along these lines. Like the title of the book is Legacy. And before we kind of started recording, I was saying that I was like, oh, because her mom's a doctor, but you said it has a double meaning. So what is that double meaning for you? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, obviously the obvious one is that I'm a second generation black woman physician, which is something that's very rare. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of, but also frustrated about because that really shouldn't be the case. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But the other, but the other huge legacy is the legacy of racism in medicine, how like deeply embedded racism has been for centuries um, in the discipline of medicine in this country in a way that I think people are not fully aware of. So when you think about some of the racial health inequities that we see today, you know, like black birthing people, you know, being three to four times more likely to die. And you're like, wait, why is that happening? And it's, it's literally because like anti-black, anti-blackness, anti-black racism is so deeply rooted within the discipline of medicine. And I wanted to use this book to, to really explained that to people in a way that was accessible. Like I am an, I am an academic at heart. So yeah, I'm sure that comes out in in parts of the book, but I do think that using my personal story was a way just as a vehicle to like shine a light on these issues that I think can be like, seem so lofty to people. Yeah. And I think like what's really interesting and, you know, I guess I should say, you know, I think people know my husband is a physician. I'm a black woman. So I have been interested in medicine for, we've been together for 15 years almost. So like I've been, you know, I've, I've read the Harriet Washington, you know, like I read Emperor of Maladies, like for shits and giggles, you know, like, and that's really not my lane, but like, I'm interested in medicine and in these kinds of things. And what I find really interesting about like the way that you paired a paired like the medical racism with your own story is that you really made it like super accessible for people who aren't me, like people who've never read Harriet Washington and you sort of open this door that maybe they might read your story and then be more interested and want to pick up like medical apartheid or like one of those other books, which I really appreciated. But I think there's a third, I think there's a third legacy meaning. Can I, can I pitch you on my meaning? 
Go ahead. What about the legacy that you're leaving for future physicians and Black women physicians to talk about their struggles and to like not stay in places where they don't feel welcome or to recognize that they are part, like that you're sort of leaving a legacy of your own work? Because that was the meaning I thought you were going to say. Tracy, you're going to make me tear up. (laughs) And you know what it is? I think also because I'm still in that, I'm I'm like Mm. currently in that space where where I still haven't seen the impact of leaving, leaving this like traditional path, right? Right. Like, oh, I'm going to stay in this environment that's like super conservative and I'm going to teach and do research and all this great stuff because that's what success is. But no, I'm going to peace out because I'm not feeling valued, appreciated, and I'm going to start my own company. And then I'm, and then like, you know, the pandemic happens and BLM happens and I get to have these opportunities to have a larger voice on health equity. Right. And show because I always felt really guilty about leaving the medical students right I, I, I always felt like they they felt like I abandoned them and people were like no you didn't abandon them you showed them that there are many different Other alternatives ways. yes and it's not just for the medical students it's for like black women in any space because I think the story that I tell about my experience in academia academia it's a story that women in corporate America women in nonprofit black women everywhere can relate to yeah okay you're saying so many things. I literally have like so many things written down that I want to talk about, but I want to go back to the title and then I want to come back to okay, this, okay, okay. which is, do you feel any pressure to carry this legacy of your family, especially knowing that so few black women are doctors and like you come from this family and like, is there pressure about like doing it right or like being the right kind of black woman doctor? Do you feel any of that stress? No, no, I don't. I don't because like, I finally feel like I'm living in my truth. Like I finally feel like I'm doing work that puts me in alignment with what's really important to me. And I wasn't in alignment for a very long time, but I didn't realize that like it had to come to like blows for me to recognize that. So I definitely don't feel that pressure. And people always ask me, they're like, but what about your kids? What if you're, what if you're, I have a seven, nine year old boys. What if they wanted to be doctors? Like, you know, would you be excited about that? And and, I, I say, I say in the book, I'm like, uh, like we would have to have a really serious conversation about that because I don't know if I would want to put them in that environment, an environment yeah. where there are even fewer black men in medicine than black women. Right. Right. My husband always is like, no, our kids are not going to be doctors. <laughs> okay. So yeah. So I, honestly, I, I would love for them to be creative. Like I, I, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I really would. I'd be like, okay, I, I support you. Like what, you know, you don't have to do the traditional careers that people think are like privileged and respected. Right. And I think with doctors, what's really interesting is like you sort of have to decide you want to be a doctor and then there really isn't another path for you or like it's hard to find other paths for doctors. It's not like if you become a lawyer, you could like go on to just have a law degree and like be a barista or whatever. Like it's like, right. doc, I don't, there's not a lot of doctors that like become doctors, invest all of that time, all of that training, and then decide like, actually, I want to be a school teacher or like, actually, I want to become a paint. Like it's just not common. Yeah. And, and there's a term for that. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on it, but it's this idea of like you spending so much of your time and effort you know, training for something, getting educated, right? That even if you do change your mind, like at a certain point in your career, you're like, I really can't, I really can't leave because I look all, look all this work that I've put into this to get here. Right. I can't right. leave. And it's like, no, you can leave. You, you really can. You can leave. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I understand. I feel like having watched the experience, not actually gone through it, I'm like, I would feel, I would def, I mean, I would feel guilty. I'm, I have a lot of issues around wanting to be a perfectionist. So I would feel guilty leaving for sure. But I understand it's just so much time. It's so much energy. It takes so much, not just for yourself, but also your community. Like becoming a doctor is really hard. Yeah. I'm so curious, like just as a, as the partner of someone who's a physician, yeah. because I know that, you know, my, my ex-husband worked in television and whenever he was around my colleagues, he's like, you guys, all you do is just talk about medicine. Like you are yeah. not particularly interesting people. And I'm like, we used to be really interesting. I promise you. Yeah. No, it's true. Doctors are pretty boring to hang out with, <laughs> like a group of doctors. My husband's department is actually really fantastic. I was telling you this offline yeah. because yeah. he's a, he's an OB and his department has like eight out of 22 of the doctors are black women, which is unbelievable as, you know, given the statistic I just told you, obviously, you know. Right. And so I actually really like a lot of people in his department because they're black women and we relate on a lot of other levels. But previously, like in residency and in med school, it was really challenging to be around the doctors. But I think also once you become a physician and like you become an attending, you have more of a life than maybe you did yeah. in residency and <laughs> fellowship or whatever. Yeah, I used to, I used to laugh about it. I used to laugh about that because I would say like, oh, I was so interesting before I went to medical school because that's yeah. what makes you interesting. Like they're looking for interesting people, and then once you get in, that whole process yeah. just you become an kind of automaton essentially. Right, they're making doctors now. They don't care about interesting people. Okay, I wanted to come back to this because you mentioned like you know you're writing this book not just for black women doctors or your med students, but also you know black women in other fields to see that there are other paths and like ways forward and. I read this the week of um, Claudine Gay being let go at Harvard, and I was thinking a lot about what you were saying and what I was witnessing for her. And, and you use a – I can't remember who you attributed it to, but there's a phrase called pet to threat phenomena. And I'd love for you to explain that. And also, I'd love for you to tell me your take on the Claudine Gay Harvard situation. Yeah, thank, that's such a thoughtful question. Thank you for asking that. And I think, you know um, – yeah, the pet to threat phenomenon. It's like it's something that actually I hadn't heard about until I went through it. Yeah, and so it's like it's when it's when, it's when these organizations and institutions like welcome in a black woman. They're like, oh, you know, we're, we're so happy you're here. You know, you're so talented. You're so great. And then once that woman is in the organization and also starts to make observations about you know what things right. need to be changed or how can we make it more inclusive, how can we make it more diverse. Then over time, she becomes a threat and people start to isolate her. They start to label her the problem and then try to push her out or make it so untenable for her that she's like, I, I got to get out of here. I'm going to leave. Um, and it's actually, I think her name, the psychologist's name is Keisha Thomas, maybe. But but, it, but literally, yeah. she, but she has like studied this. It's not like something that like Black women are anecdotally talking about like literally this is phenomena that she interviewed many many women about that exists in organizations and what's interesting is like a lot of times black women black women come into organizations in a completely different role in your story in your case when this happened to you you came into a DEI role at NYU uh, which is my alma mater though not the med school um but you came in in a DEI role. So your job was literally to make waves and make changes. But sometimes it happens to black women who just like observe something as the manager of their like yeah. grocery store, right? It, like exactly. it's not always the situation where it's like your job is to confront this head on. Sometimes it's just like, hey, I noticed you guys 
at this gym don't have any black hair care products or whatever. Right, exactly. Yeah, it, it, it could be within any sort of role, within any sort of organization, but you go from being loved and like admired to then being right. like the persona non grata within the, or within the company or within the store or whatever workplace. But like when you were asking about Claudine Gay, you know, it just, it, it broke my heart because, you know, as a Harvard alumna, I was so excited when she was appointed. Yeah. And I did, I'm not saying, I, was, I wasn't I was naive. I did know that, you know, there was going to be extra scrutiny of her, that she was going to be under a microscope. I didn't think it would go down like this. I, I, I didn't think mm-hmm. that it would, that her tenure would end up being like the shortest tenure of any Harvard president. And what's interesting, um, which I haven't really shared publicly before, is that when she was appointed in that role, when it was the announcement was made, there was a a group of Black Harvard women alumna who actually came together and said, we have to protect her. Like, we have to protect her. And literally, I went Mm. to a gathering of them, even before everything kind of went down badly. And because to support her, like, we prayed for her. You know, so it's right. like, so it's like, we know, like we, we, we just know from experience, our own personal experiences, how right. hard it was going to be for her. And it, it like, it really, it sat. And then that evening after the, after it, the announcement that she resigned, I was on a call and, you know, it was just all, all different black alumni and everyone was just kind of speechless and devastated about it. Yeah. It's so interesting because this kind of is mirroring something else in the book. You talk about before you take the DEI job, how like you talk to the person who was in the role before and they were like, it's not great here. And you still took the job. And you kind of mentioned that you had this optimism that like it wouldn't happen to you. It couldn't happen to you. Like you were so excited about the job. You had these sort of like I blinders on or like I'm not, I don't, I hear what you're saying, but like you weren't really taking it in. But it's one of those things, I experienced that too, of like, not that you think that you're different or special, but just that like your hopes and your optimism yeah. like will protect you maybe in some way. I know. And I feel like that's what I'm hearing you say is like you all got you. The reason the group got together was because you knew it wasn't going to be good. But like there's this optimism of like, yes, we know racism exists. That's why we're gathering. But also it's going to be fine. Like we're going to be fine. And I don't, I don't, there needs to be a phenomenon for that. Cause like it even happens to you in your story in the book about your appendectomy, right? It's like, you don't believe when you're the person who's like being racismed against that you're being racismed against, but you know, it can happen to you or like, you know, yeah. that you're vulnerable. Yeah. I think it's almost like, I think because we're human, it's like, you almost don't want to believe it because it almost in- insults your sense of humanity. You're just like, no, or like I individuality. Yeah, yeah. You're like, I can't be, I'm, I'm like, really? I'm being treated differently because, you know, in this situation with my appendix where I had to go to the ER three times um, and ended up with a ruptured appendix and had all these complications. And looking back at it, it really wasn't in that moment. It really was looking back that I was like, oh, oh, okay. You know, would that have not happened if I was, if I wasn't a young black woman? Yeah. And I guess this is kind of tied to this. We know that there's like a lot of medical racism. It's been well documented. You talk about it in the book. There's plenty of other books. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence. We hear stories of black women dying in childbirth. I mean, Serena Williams, Beyonce, like these famous black women having issues with their like we hear these stories over and over. But one of the things that I've noticed, again, anecdotally, is that sometimes these cases, especially with maternal uh, mortality, come with come from black doctors. There was a story a few months ago where a black 
uh, baby was decapitated and the doctor was a black physician. And I would love to know sort of your thoughts about like how medical racism is even pervasive individually with black doctors. Yeah. I mean, I think that is so important to talk about. And even like in my call to action at the end of the book, I talk to black health, black doctors about that, how we are educated and trained in the same anti-black white supremacist learning environments as our colleagues. You know what I mean? Like, like we can internalize that too. So we are totally, you know, not, not guilty. Like we have to really think about our own, our own internalized biases that can manifest themselves when we care for our own patients, that we actually think that people that look like us don't even don't deserve the same level of care. Obviously, I don't think we consciously think that, but I do think, but I do think that's something, it's an important issue to talk about among black doctors. Like, yes, we know, like you were saying, we know that there are studies that have shown that there are better outcomes with black doctors. Right. But at the same time, you know, we have that obligation to make sure that we are looking inward when we care for our patients. Like we're, you know, we are, yeah, we, we, it's not like it's not like with our colleagues or we're just like, OK, you know, we're black. We're good. You know, because we, right. we could perpetuate the same inequities and the same biases um, that our colleagues do. So I think that is so important. And that's something like I don't get defensive about because yeah. it's a reality. It's a reality. But right. I also think it's because we not only are we trained in these environments, we we live in an anti-black society. <laughs> right. You know, right. so it's not something that is unexpected, but it is something that I think that we really need to discuss like very explicitly and think about ways to mitigate those biases. Yeah. And I think also like, have, did you read the book that came out last year called the people's hospital by Ricardo Nuila? It was about, as about the public hospital in Houston. Um, But one of the things he talks about is that a lot of the systems themselves are racist. So you're trained in ways where it's like you follow this flow chart, but like in the book, I think you mentioned that like the ox- oximeter, the, the, the reader, pulse oximeter, yeah. Yeah, the pulse oximeter that registers like your oxygen level doesn't work as well on dark skinned people. But if your flow chart of like what to do with a patient is dependent on a certain number and the person like that you wouldn't even like that all doctors, but that includes black doctors, might not even be thinking critically mm-hmm. about the systems in place. Oh, absolutely. And just like even the pulse oximeter issue, that actually, that issue has been around for 30 years. The FDA knew about this issue. Most practicing physicians did not know about this issue until the last two years when the pandemic oh, hit man. and people started doing these studies about outcomes and seeing that people with melanated skin were doing more poorly. And that was because the pulse oximeter was actually overestimating their oxygen level and saying, hey, you're okay. You don't need these other medications to help you be treated um, for COVID. And then they ended up dying. Right. Right. So fucked up. Uh <laughs> Um, I want to ask you, so you also are like a, a public, a public doctor is what I like to call people like you. You're, you're a doctor, not just for your patients, but also like you you go on television, you talked about doctory things, you tweet about doctory things. What sort of pressure do you, or don't you feel around being like a general doctor? Cause I know so many times with doctors, it's like, can you tell me this? And they're like, well, I haven't seen your chart. Like, right. so how do you feel about like going out publicly to like millions of people and kind of like talking generally about things? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, so I'm an emergency medicine physician. So that's like, we call it a generalist specialty. So I know yeah. a little bit, of, I know a little bit about about everything. About, about everything. Yeah. 
I don't get like obviously deep in the weeds with any particular topic, but I just, I always think of myself as a health communicator. Like my job is to communicate Mm. to the public in a way that is easily accessible to them. So if a study comes out or recommendation comes out, I think to myself, okay, how can I communicate this to people so that the lay public understands? Because I know there's an awful lot of information out there and it's incredibly overwhelming. So I actually feel like it's my obligation to digest it in a way that makes it easy for people to understand. You don't have to name names, but do you ever watch other health communicators on television or wherever and be like, that's not real? Because I feel like that's become a huge thing, like misinformation or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, there are some that I will not name that yes, definitely, no names, no names. you know, certain networks will invite them on that give out really dangerous, inaccurate mm-hmm. information. And that's one thing I think people don't realize, like when I when I go on air or when I share on social media... I research whatever I am talking, whatever I'm sharing, like I over research. I spend a lot of time, like even if it's, if I go in here for three minutes, I prep for like three hours because, because, no, because I feel that obligation to, to making sure, especially because I know, especially black folks are listening to me. And I know that, you know, during the pandemic, especially black folks were listening to me. So I was like, I have to make sure that I am on point But I also feel like, you know, as a perfectionist um, and, you know, as a black woman being under a microscope, because literally I would go off air sometimes and check my Twitter and and people would be like, "Um, excuse me, you said 3.2% and it was really 3.1%. So it's like you're always under a microscope. Yeah. Gosh, that's so hard. Okay. The flip side of that question is besides yourself, are there other medical people that people should be like engaging with who you think do a really great job or like other folks? Cause I think that's hard is like, I don't experience this because I, I know a lot of doctors actually weirdly yeah. enough, but like a lot of people don't. And you mentioned that in your book that your, your former barber, like he waited to, he like waited to bump into you to be like, what's going on with the vaccine? Because you're the only doctor I know and trust. So who are some other sort of public doctors mm-hmm. that folks should be either following on social or, or looking out for on, on their televisions or both? Sure. Like, so, so actually this person, I, I trained him. He's a former, <laughs> he's a former resident of mine from NYU, but he's a um, Good Morning America correspondent, Dr. Darian Sutton Ramsey. Um, is he a twin? Is he the twin and also? He's, and, and he's a twin. I know his partner's partner or his brother's partner. His OBG, yes. He's OBGYN. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need, they're both so hot. <laughs> Not to objectify, but they're beautiful men. No, I I, I, trust trust me when I, when I would supervise him and go in after he went in to talk to a patient and there were certain patients that would be like, oh, that, that man was very, very handsome. He's very attractive. Very attractive. (laughs) Okay. So, so, okay. Okay. Him. He is, he is amazing. And he was, and I know him personally. I trained him. He is amazing. Um, There's um, Dr. Jen Caudle, um, J-E-N-C-A-U-D-L-E. And she is on... Um, YouTube and TikTok, and she's been around for a while, and she's okay. such an amazing health communicator. And then there's Joelle Burvel, who is not okay. even out of medical school yet, but he oh. does a lot of work on social media around dispelling um, biases in medicine, so racial biases okay. in medicine. A lot of really great history and current day stuff that actually patients are able to use when they go see their doctor. So those three, yeah. I, I would highly recommend. Okay. I love that. That's so helpful. Okay. We're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and talk about your reading life. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. 
That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. All right, everybody, we are back. So I didn't prep you for this. This is the one surprise. You can't prepare for this. Perfectionist, be damned. Every month, someone writes in and asks us for a book recommendation. So I'm going to read to you what they said, and then you just have to come up with one recommendation. I'm going to give them three, but you can just give them one. Um, This comes from Emily, and Emily says, I enjoy multi-generational family novels. However, I struggle finishing anything over 500 pages, for example, Pachinko. And a lot of these books tend to be long. I have enjoyed Homegoing, Black Cake, and The Five Wounds. Do you have a recommendation for a multi-generational family novel that's not crazy long? Would love any suggestions from you and your guest. I can go first if you want a second to think, unless you have something that popped into your head already. Um, I don't know how many pages this is, but White Teeth by Zadie Smith. Oh, yeah. I, that's long, but not that's not crazy long. I think that counts. Okay. Do you okay. want to say why you like it? Oh, because it was just entertaining to read. She brings a lot of humor into it. I love all the different characters, and they're really complex. And I, I read it when it first came out, and I, I can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. 
Amazing. Okay, Emily, that is your recommendation from Uche. My, I got. I have three for you. I went very. I went as slim as I possibly could, Emily. Okay, I really tried hard here. So the first one is a classic. It's the Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan. Oh, yes. And it's yeah. the story of four women who immigrate to America from China, and it's their stories in China, and then also their da- daughter's stories in mm-hmm. America. If you've never seen the movie, it's also so good. The book is so good. It's a classic for a reason. So that's that. The next one is Red at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson. It's really great. It's the story of a, of a woman who is like teenage pregnancy and then her family story and relationship to Tulsa. They have a connection to the Tulsa race massacre. Um, and it's really great and beautiful. And we did that on book club with Jason Reynolds in 2019. So you have that to listen to after you read it. Awesome. And then the last one, this is sort of a stretch. It's, it is a little family, but it's also just like multi-perspective. And that's There There by Tommy Orange, which is about... Um, a Native American community that ha- is going to a uh, big powwow in Oakland, California. And it's all the stories of like these different people and how they connect to each other. It's not technically family, but it is multi-generational and they do have like relationships with each other. Yeah. So those okay. are our suggestions. And if you read them, let us know what you think. And for people who want to have something read on the air, email askthestacks at thestackspodcast.com. Okay, now we get to talk about your taste in books. Two books you love, one book you hate. Okay, the book that I hate was easy to come up with. Okay, I love this. I think it's probably The the Great Gatsby. Mm. Yeah, I just couldn't, I mean, reading it just felt like really onerous and there was nothing in it I could relate to. I just, the fact that I was forced to read it, I'm still still resenting that. I might yeah. go back and reread it because I read an article not too long ago that was saying that if you read The Great Gatsby, but you read Jay Gatsby as passing for white, uh, then, that there's then. like some clues in the book that he was maybe passing. So now I want to go back and revisit it yeah. just to read it and see. Because I feel like if that's the case, maybe I'll like it because I don't right. like it currently. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> as it stands, I don't like it. Yeah. Um, what about two books you love? Okay, so one of the books that I really love that I think just changed the way that I think about myself and my relation to the world was um, All About Love on um, Bell Hooks. Yeah, yeah. That's a and classic. I read it when I was really, I, I think I read it in my, was it my, my 20s? Yeah, my 20s. And just, I was just at a moment where I, where I needed that book. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was just amazing. The other one that I love, I, I have my bookshelf here. Um, is a book called The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People How Good People Fight Bias. And it's by an NYU business school professor named Dolly Chug, who I befriended when I was in medical school. <laughs> but but she is like an organizational psychologist. And mm. this book actually brings in a lot of psychology data about unconscious bias, but also makes it really easily accessible to to readers. And so she has this idea that like, you know, people like to think about people as like either good or bad, you know, like mm-hmm. you're, you're racist, you're bad, you're not racist. You're no, like we are all like goodish people, goodish. Yeah. And, and we're, tr- we're like, we're all works in progress. And yeah. like, that's really like, the, like growth mindset is really what we should be working with when we're thinking about like the internal biases we hold. But I just found like a lot of the psychology data that she used and how she presented it really compelling. Mm-hmm. I love that. What kind of reader are you? How would you describe yourself as a reader? I am a fast reader. Okay. <laughs> I also, be, I think because 
because being a physician, I definitely read a lot of like medical related, like research related work. And I really have to try hard to read. I I wish I read more um, fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that I've been trying to do more of. Like there's a book called um, On Rotation. I don't know if you heard of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't know how to pronounce my friend's last name. I think it's Shirley Ubibi. You can, you can, but she's actually, but she's a cardiologist, a cardiology fellow. And she wrote a book called On Rotation. It's like a romantic, it's like a romantic novel. Oh. Yeah, I know. Cause she, she does a lot of graphic artistry. So she does cartoons cool. and that's what she's known for. And so she also wrote, she's also an author and now working on her second book. Oh my God. That sounds fantastic. I know. I, I know. I yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you read a lot of the like pop medicine kind of books like Atul Gawande and like those things? Or do you read mostly medical, like deep research academia? No, I've, I've read like complications, yeah. you know, back in, like back in the day. Um, Me too. But now, but, but now, but now, now I, now I, I don't know. Yeah. Like, no. like there's that other book that came out um, that's on like the bestsellers. Like I think, is it, is it Paul Atia? The book on, um, yeah. Um, P- oh, Peter Atia. Peter Atia. And what's it called? Outlive. Oh, the yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that. Longevity. Like everyone yeah. is reading that book. And when I talk to people who are um, physicians, they're like, yeah, I mean, there's nothing like groundbreaking in this, but it's just right. kind of how he breaks down a lot of these very interesting concepts that, yeah, probably do lead to longer, healthier lives. But the book, the right. book literally is, is, I don't know how many, it's, it's huge. It's huge. It's huge. But everyone's oh. reading it, which I'm so, I'm so incredibly impressed by. But I feel like it's one of those pop, those pop books. Yeah. Yeah. I read, I read some of those sometimes. And then I read like books by like doctors, like being serious, but that are, you know, not like academic books, like, you know, like Emperor of Maladies, like that yeah. kind of stuff, like the gene or whatever. What are you reading right now? So right now I'm reading two books. One is um, Breaking the Cycle by Dr. Mario Bouquet okay. that just that just came out um, yeah. on intergenerational trauma, actually. And, and it's something that I've wanted to read because I see it within my own, my own family. I, I have, you know, right. my, my, my dad is an immigrant from Jamaica. You know, my mom, even though she passed away, grew up in poverty. And I kind of like there were things I noticed growing up. That I didn't really mm. appreciate were signs of trauma that had not been dealt with by my parents, um, mm-hmm. and I'm and I sworn my sworn to myself that I'm not I'm not going to pass that on to my kids. Right, right. Um, the other one is "Stop Waiting for Perfect," okay. the person you want to be by L'Oreal Thompson Payton. Do you, okay, I don't it, know. Oh, it's like a self help book, but it's for perfectionists. It's There's a, another perfectionist book that was recommended to me. Uh, by another guest who's also a black woman perfectionist. Shout out to Minda Honey. Um, what was it called? It's like it's like a, the perfectionist guide to like not being so fucking perfect. Yeah, yeah this one is like <laughs> or something. Yeah, like this that. one is like a workbook. Like as you read it, like you're doing oh, wow. you're, you're doing work to like you know just essentially give yourself grace. Um, I love. It. Okay, wait. Yeah. The one that Min- the Minda one is the perfectionist guide to losing control. Oh just came through on my library holds actually okay. so I'll be listening to yeah. it very soon I'll do, let you know do, how it do is you do, audio, do you do audiobooks mostly yes I do so many no not mostly I I read about 60 percent 60 to 70 percent with my eyes and 30 to 40 percent with my ears okay I really loved recording my audiobook that was so much I listened fun. to your audiobook you did such a good job reading it I was really impressed thank you and you know what's interesting I I wish that like in the process of writing a book 
that before your final manuscript like was submitted, I wish that you could do the audiobook because there were so many things when I read my audiobook, I was like, wait a minute. Like I would have not I hear that so many times. That. I would have not done that. What? You know? So I'm like, yeah. I don't know why. I-, I wish they didn't like wait until after the final final manuscript was submitted mm. for you to read the audiobook because there's something about reading out loud. out loud. I know advice advice to future authors even if they don't let you do it, you should still find time to read your whole book out loud to yourself. I know. I've heard that from multiple debut authors. Really? Actually, multiple authors, maybe not only debut authors, but certainly from multiple debut authors, that like the reading of the book out loud made them think like, oh, I would have changed this or I would have like, I could have moved this section or like like all sorts of things. Or I could have reworded this or that that doesn't go there. Yeah. So, I mean, so even though it was a lot of fun afterwards, I was kind of like, (laughs) yeah, well, now, you know, for your next book. Yeah. Like, okay, I want to do the audiobook. No, but you do a great job reading the audiobook. I really enjoyed it. I just felt like it, it made it feel even more personal, which I always really like with a memoir. Are there any books or let me ask you this. How do you come up with what you're going to read next? Who do you take recommendations from? Where do you find? Um, I'm mostly from friends. Definitely, I follow a lot of book accounts, you know, on social. But you, but, but, but usually, I but usually it's my friends who are also like mamas and professionals, and I just like love to like listen to them and get their advice. So yeah, so I usually yeah. 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 What about you? Me? Uh, everywhere. Anywhere. I subscribe to the New York Times Book Review, so I read that every Sunday. I follow a ton of book accounts, obviously. I follow a lot of authors. A lot of times authors will be like, oh, my friend's book's coming and yeah. I'm really excited. Yeah. Um, and usually when I have people on the show, they'll recommend books and I add it to my TBR or I'll go out and buy. I think usually like at least once a month, I read something that's been recommended to me on the show because... I think I know so many books and then people are always telling me books I've never heard of. And you're like, like, what? That sounds interesting. I know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's just so many books in the world, not to mention new books, but also books that have been out for forever. So I'm constantly, and I take recommendations from some of my friends, though people in my life don't recommend books to me anymore, usually. Why? Why not? (laughs) Because they know, because they know that I, they're like, oh, well, I'm sure you've already read it. Like they get oh. weird. Like I never get books for for gifts, which I hate because I love getting like a book that I've never heard of. But they're like, you know, every book. Because one year someone in my family gifted me Becoming by Michelle Obama the year that it came out. And I was like, you know, I already read yeah. this book. <laughs> does, your, does, your, um, does your husband read? I'm just curious. As a doctor, yes, he reads a lot. He does. He does read. Um, he reads a lot of like magazines. We subscribe to, like I said, the New York Times, the Atlantic. Um, he reads his little OBGYN journals, green, like journals. yeah, his journals. Um, so he does that, but then he usually reads probably anywhere between like 12 and 25 books a year, but mostly he reads things that I suggest to him or things that he's like independently interested in. Okay. You know, like, got really, it. Like he's like reading Oppenheimer right now, which I was like, no thanks. Or Prometheus, right. whatever it's called. Yeah. Um, um, I, I, but he does read a good amount for a while. Um, when I was working on my book, I didn't want to read anything cause I was worried. Mm. I was, I didn't want to get any ideas from, from anything else. So anyone else. Yeah, yeah. So for like a year, I was just like, not really, I mean, I, I would read magazines and journals, but I wasn't reading any, any books. Yeah. When you, do you remember what the first book you read was when you finished? I think it was Liberty by Caitlin Greenidge. Oh, yeah. Greenidge. I know, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Another, that's another black woman in a family of le- yeah. a legacy, a yeah. different kind, I know. but certainly. I know. Yeah. Do you, do you have any books that you love to recommend to people? Let's see. Yeah. Okay, so these, <laughs> these are necessarily like fun books, 
Well, okay. I, I mean, okay, so there's a book that I really love. I actually have it here. It's called it's called Race on Campus, um, The Monkey oh. Myths with Data. And it's by Julie okay. Park. It's by Julie Park. And it actually is a lot of really interesting information about, especially in this time, about like, you know, the anti-affirmative action efforts. Um, yeah. really breaks down a lot of the data about you know, admissions policies and race mm. and socioeconomic status and argues for why like affirmative action is really important, but does so by using like a lot of really interesting numbers and also talks about how these efforts pit Asian, Asian students against Black and Latinx students, right? And that it really shouldn't be about that because it's not like a zero sum game that like when you look at the data, like everyone can benefit. Um, so I really, yeah. I really like this. Is, like, I love this book. I've been, re- I've, I've read it several times. It's been around for years. Oh, I love that. I love, see, I like, I really like nonfiction and I really like, like nerdy shit like that. So I know. I'm such, I'm such, I'm such, I'm such, I'm a nerd. Of course you are. You're a doctor. Doctors are nerds. There's no not nerdy doctor. You can't be a successful doctor and not be a nerd. Like you have so, to know math and science right, and like right. all sorts of stuff. Like you had to major in chemistry or whatever. All sorts of stuff that I, I don't even use now, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know it. Yeah. Um, are there any genres that you don't like or that you avoid? I don't really like fantasy. Okay. I just Me neither personally. I don't like fantasy books or even movies. I just yeah. I don't know. I I don't, I don't know. It's just because it's how my brain works. I think I think what I want to part is just like I need like to know something is believable, and I just yeah yeah I I can't. I'm with you on that. I don't enjoy That's it. hard for me. Do you listen to audiobooks? Actually, I don't. I listen to a lot yeah. of podcasts. But I feel like, especially after I recorded my audiobook, I was like, girl, you need to be listening to more audiobooks because instead of like, I go on long walks and listen to my podcast, but I'm like, you can just listen to your audiobooks. But I think with time, sometimes at night, I love to decompress and I read, usually read right before I go to bed. Um, So, and I like reading like the actual hard copy as opposed to listening. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That makes sense. What's your ideal reading setup? Where are you? Time of day, snacks or beverages, temperature, music, kind of set the scene. Yeah. So I am in my bed with um, a cup of hot chamomile tea with some agave syrup in it next to the bed with my nightlight on next to the bed with the window a little bit open. So it's cool. And the children are in their room and sleeping. (laughs) Sleeping. Always the children have to be far, far away for sure. Did you ever worry you were going to have twins or did you want I, twins? Um, I, I never worried about it, but you know, I, I remember how overwhelmed my mom was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Twins are a lot. Uh, yeah. Sending you, sending you a lot. Of, how, how old are they? They're four and they're boys. So I'm I, really in like the worst, the worst time. Yeah. yeah I, I have two boys that two years apart. So I... Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know the pain. Um, Do you have a favorite bookstore? Okay. So my favorite bookstore is a bookstore that I actually have my, um, my pre-order campaign with Cafe Con Libros. Oh, amazing. We did our live show with them. Oh, awesome. In New York. Yeah. So what's so special about them is that they are actually in my childhood neighborhood. Like they're located Mm. like three blocks from where I grew up. Their, you know, their owner, Kalima, is um, yeah. Afro-Panamanian. Like, she's so cool. I just love the vibe inside. Um, yeah, so that's my favorite. And then also um, another one that's near me is Greenlight Bookstore. Yeah, yeah. as well. Love them too. Um, do you know the last book you purchased? The last book I purchased is actually not even um, – it's still on pre-order. 
Um, okay. Hold on, what's the name, the name of it? Oh, it's called Get Off My Neck, Black Lives, White Justice, um, A Prosecutor's Quest for, I think, Justice or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's an author. She's a, she's a prosecutor. She's with my literary agency. And, okay, we, cool. and, we were, and we were messaging and she's like, oh, I'm coming out with my memoir, too. And so it's like, uh, it's, it's like kind of like my memoir, but like the, the lawyer version. Right, right, right. Um, so yeah, Interesting. So, so I just pre-ordered that and that should be out soon. I love that. I also found out that our a previous guest we had this year for YA is also with your agency because I oh, was, really? they like tagged me in something. And then I was like, I saw your book and then I oh. saw her book and I was like, oh, oh my oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. Um, that Carolina Eekstad. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Shut cool. up. This is serious. Yeah. Yes. So you guys have the same agent. Yeah. I, I love, yeah. I love my agent. <laughs> Which is fun. Yeah. I don't really pay attention to agents because that doesn't really, like, I usually deal with more like publishers, like once the book comes yeah. out, but sometimes there's certain agencies where I'm like, wow, I've done a lot of your books recently. Yeah. Like I like what you guys are putting yeah. out. So that's always fun. Um, what's the last book that made you laugh? Oh, it probably was that uh, I think Trevor Noah's book. Um, oh yeah. Born a crime. Yeah. Which I never thought I would read, but I oh my God, reading. it's so good. I know it's, I was like, what? It's so good. It was, and it was also so touching as well. Like I yeah. cried, I laughed, but that, that I definitely laughed reading that one. Well, that's my next question. What's the last book that made you cry? That, that one? one? Yeah. Okay. What's the last book that made you angry? I think maybe Killing Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, about Rage. like reproductive justice. Like, that's just like... I don't think Dorothy Roberts writes books that don't make you want to just burn it all down. Uh, yeah. I think like her genre is just like burn it to the ground. Yeah. Everyone is trash. <laughs> What about a book where you felt like you learned a lot, which I'm sure is most of the books you read. I but know. One that felt extra, extra learning. Mm, I would say, huh, extra learning. I don't know. There's so many. There's so many. I know. It's, it's hard um, when you read a lot of like serious nonfiction, I feel. I know. I know. Let's see. I really liked um, Linda Villarosa's book, Under the Skin. It's, I mean, obviously similar topic to mine, but, you know, but she's a journalist. She's been writing about black health for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And the way that she, she tells stories, it's really beautiful. And she probably, she brings in um, the people that she interviews and she actually um, has a chapter about Appalachia where she's, where she talks to basically, you know, these low income white folks and they are going through, uh, you know, similar experiences, especially with mm. op- opioid dependence um, and, but she did it like so, so beautifully with so much humanity. So I, I, I love, love that, that book. Yeah. Is there any book that you're embarrassed that you still have never read? Yes. And I have it on my, um, one of the James Baldwin books. Um, go tell it. Go tell it on the mountain. mountain. Yes. I still haven't read that. I haven't read it either. Don't worry. You're not alone. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. I used to be really embarrassed about things I haven't read. And then I started doing the show and I'm like, I've not read that. Not read that. So I sort of lost some of my shame around it. But but you've also read so much. Yeah, I have. That's right. I'm like, yeah, you're like, I read a lot. Well, right. But you're a doctor. So what do you need to be embarrassed about? You fucking read every book on diabetes or whatever. (laughs) Like, (laughs) um, what about a favorite book from childhood? Oh, I really liked, I think it's A a Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. Any favorite books that were assigned to you in school? Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've never read that. That was, I never, I never, I have it, um, but I've never read it. 
What about what's a book you would assign to high school students? I would say um, Medical Apartheid because I think that I learned so much as a practicing physician that I think I should have learned earlier on in my education. And I think um, Harriet Washington, one, is brilliant. And two, I think there's a lot in that book that like everyone needs to know and they can know it, they can know it as early as possible, just how you know, just the, the history and, and help connect the dots to why we're, we are where we are today. Um, I think that yeah. book would be amazing. Yeah. I mean, there's a part in your book where you, where you talk about Henrietta Lacks. And I think now a lot of people know that story because of Rebecca Sloot's book and the movie and like it's now public information. But you talk about how you didn't know about that until you were like well into your adulthood. Yeah. And I think it's just like so it's so interesting to think that like something like that doesn't really come to the forefront until someone like writes a book about it. Who's just like some white lady journalist. Like it wasn't a big news story. It didn't come out. It was like, this woman was like, Oh, I'm interested in this. I know. Um, and Harriet Washington's book, medical apartheid is incredible. It's so good. And and she has another book on environmental racism. I think a a terrible mind, which is also really great. I think she has two other books, right? Isn't she also, she also medical bondage. She, or no, is that no, 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 she's not. No, I don't think so. She, no, she's medical apartheid, but not medical bondage. She has another book. She definitely has a book about, yeah, something like a terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I have it somewhere. Anyways, um, who would you want to write the book of your life if it couldn't be you? If someone else was going to tell your story, who would you want to write it? Imani Perry. Ah, the queen. The queen. When I was an undergrad, she was in grad school at Harvard. So like I literally, oh. as, like I would always like be like, this is like my big sister and she is amazing. And like it continued. Yeah. She's so amazing. So amazing. Okay. Last one. If you could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would you want it to be? Oh, oh maybe the, the new Jim Crow. Yeah. She needs that. Yeah. He's all, yeah. he's in the pages. So yeah. he just needs to read about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, such a good book. All right, everybody. This has been a wonderful conversation with Uche Blackstock. She's going to be back uh, at the end of February to discuss viral justice, how we grow the world we want by Ruha Benjamin. I am so excited to talk about this book with you. I'm obsessed with Ruha Benjamin. I'm so, so excited. Also, I found out Ruha Benjamin has a new book coming out this year. Also, like in February. Yes. Anyways, we're not talking about that one. We're talking about viral justice. But now, folks, you can go and get your copy of Legacy wherever you get your books. It is out in the world as we're or as you're listening. It is also a fantastic audio book. I listened to it. Dr. Uche does a great job. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Tracy. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Dr. Uche Blackstock for joining the show. I'd also like to thank Shelby Meislick for helping to make this conversation possible. Dr. Uche will return on Wednesday, February 28th for the Stacks Book Club conversation around our pick, Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want by Ruha Benjamin. If you love the show and you want inside access to it, head over to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, threads, and TikTok, and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. You can also check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. 
This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 